Hi there, and welcome to Forgotten Scenes, where we take a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies. Sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season is called The Freaks in the Barn, and we are talking about the glam psychedelic explosion of Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. This is episode 5, Cracks. I'm Keith Pilly. So we have, of course, been talking about the amazing psychedelic bands that sprung up in the wake of David Bowie's brief exile in Sioux City, and the scene that developed around them, centered in a sort of Midwestern version of Andy Warhol's factory known as The Barn, which was owned by car dealership heir Big Tex Lowry. Last week, we talked about the stretch of 1973 and 1974 that served as the scene's golden age, including the founding of Cow Pie Records and subsequent regional releases from the Visceral Realists and Sammy Otto and the Jawbones. Then we talked about the notorious 1974 show at the barn, where Sammy Otto performed a summoning ritual on stage, freaking out the crowd and, as far as she believes, calling a malign entity into our plane of existence. This week, could be because of that malign entity, could be because human beings with access to cash always find a way to ruin things, could just be that nothing pure can ever endure. Whatever reason, the golden age of the Sioux City freakout develops some cracks. Now, looking back, the infamous Walpurgis Night Show is an easy thing to hang a marker on and say, this was the turning point. But that's needlessly reductive. Certainly nobody thought so at the time. It was a weird show where something weird happened, but in a scene that celebrated itself for its weirdness, if anything, this was even looked on as kind of a triumph. Had David Bowie ever had the balls to try to summon a demon on stage? From the point of view of the people in the barn, the good times continued to roll through the spring of 1974. The Visceral Realists, Sammy Otto and the Jawbones, and the Thwarted continued to rotate through the headlining slots at the barn, and an ecosystem of smaller, lower-profile bands continued to grow around them. Trippier acts from the national stage continued to swing through Sioux City when they could. A Flame and Groovy's headliner slot, with the Visceral Realists opening, got so hot that the police had to show up during the encores. In May... The first full-length album on Cowpie Records came out, the Visceral Realists' debut album, Thrust. It had been recorded in a feverish week in Minneapolis at Nicolet Studios, co-produced by Billy Hoska and Jim Gaines. Like the singles that had preceded it, Thrust sold pretty well locally. The fact that Cowpie had basically no distribution outside of Iowa kept it from doing anything nationally, but a few copies circulated and made their ways into the hands of selected hipsters on the coasts. Things weren't as smooth for Sammy Otto and the Jawbones. They were booked into Rainbow Sound in Omaha a week after the Realist sessions, again with Jim Gaines producing. But when the Jawbones rolled into Omaha, Sammy Otto found the studio environment threatening and hard to work in. Part of this was the lack of a crowd, Sammy Otto was very reliant on crowd interaction to keep her hyped on stage, and part of this was just interpersonal friction between her and Jim Gaines. 
And part of this was her increasing belief that something was after her. Gaines tried encouraging, cajoling, and threatening her in turn, all to little avail. Eventually, Big Tex Lowry, who was bankrolling the session, drove down from Sioux City. Otto trusted Big Tex, and with him there, the sessions progressed, and the master tracks for the Jawbone's debut record, Haywire, were laid down, although they would require significant overdubs before the record would be finished. But even if the crisis in the studio was dealt with, more or less, this marked the beginning of a long retreat inwards for Sammy Otto. She kept performing, albeit with notably higher and higher amounts of powerful drugs in her system, but her days of idly hanging out as part of the social scene at the barn waned quickly. And to be honest, people were a little relieved. I love Sammy, but she was really hard to be around after the Demon Show. During the sessions in Omaha and after, you know, she seemed so fragile, so terrified all the time, at least when she appeared to be processing reality at all. A lot of the time, she was just blasted out of her mind. When she wasn't, she was always just jumping in shadows, bursting into tears. I tried to be a good friend, tried to support her the best way I could, but, you know, she just pushed everything away. And I was sad. I was sad. She, she stopped showing up at the barn, except for the shows, and, you know, could have been for the best. Could have been, could have been positive. We were trying to make something positive happen, and, you know, Sammy just wasn't in a space where she could make that happen back then. Well, it's pretty hard for me to even talk about that summer. I was being stalked. I don't know how else to put it. I had very stupidly opened a door and asked terrible things to come and stalk me, and one of them did. I saw horrors darting just outside my field of vision all the time. So I'd be standing trying to talk to people, and it was like some dark, shadowy form would dart away, maybe brush against my shoulder on its way. I went home to my apartment and found blood everywhere, and I screamed and shut my eyes. When I opened them, it was all gone. I opened up a notebook that I used to write songs, and everything had been crossed out and a bunch of really vile threats written in. It was terrible. I don't ever want to live like that again. And I knew I'd brought it all on myself, and all for the sake of a goddamn rock and roll show. Sammy Otto's difficulties definitely impacted the scene at the barn, but the good times still kept rolling on through the summer of 1974, more or less anyway. Another hiccup happened, though, when the Milwaukee blues rock band Woodpecker successfully lured Danny Hoska away from the Visceral Realists in September of 1974. This was a case of things lining up in exactly the wrong way at exactly the wrong time. Woodpecker just happened to be in town as a weekend guest headliner at the barn just when Billy and Danny Hoska were having an uncharacteristically heated fight over rent money. And Woodpecker's guitarist, Mike Willette, just happened to proposition Danny Hoska about joining the band right then. Danny surprised everyone, including, it sounds like, Mike Willette, and left with Woodpecker on their tour bus. Danny's departure shocked everyone in the barn, especially his former bandmates. With their first cow pie release, Thrust, just having come out, 
Billy Hoska and Skip Chandler were in no mood to call it quits with the Visceral Realists. But they needed a bass player, and after Billy frustratedly tried to sing and play guitar at the same time, and quickly saw that he could do one or the other, but not both, they needed a singer. The scene at the barn was, of course, full of people with differing levels of musical skill, and to many people hanging around the barn with rock and roll dreams, this seemed like the chance of a lifetime. Scenesters Serge Benedict and Viv Tuckman joined the Visceral Realists on vocals and bass, respectively, but even though everyone tried to put a brave face on it, absolutely no one involved, up to and including Billy Hoska, was ready to pretend that the Realists hadn't lost a lot when they lost Danny Hoska. That said, Thrust did sell well locally, and even did a brisk business in record stores as far away as Kansas City. But even though he tried to put on a brave face, Billy Hoska was visibly pained at what he felt were the subpar shows that the revamped Realists were putting on. And there was trouble, or at least weirdness, in the camp of the third and final leg of the barn's top musical tier, the Thwarted. Political consciousness had always been a core element of the Thwarted, going all the way back to the beginning. This was the group, after all, who eschewed real names and insisted on being called Citizen V or whatever. And every song the band had ever written had an overt political message, usually about fighting some kind of oppression, be it economic or societal. The thwarted being political was just part of the ride. But as 1974 moved on, that dynamic started to move in strange directions. Uh, you know, all along I'd known Nick Van Zandt from the thwarted. Pretty, pretty solid, pretty well, you know. Uh, and in the band, he was Citizen V. And the summer and the fall, that's when he got weird. They all got so fucking weird. I think it's one of those things where you get a bunch of guys all together and it, they become like an echo chamber where all they hear is one another bouncing off one another again and again and again and it keep, keeps repeating, you know. And they just started taking things farther and farther off in this weird fucking direction that makes sense only if you happen to already be in the circle. And if you ain't, we didn't know what was going on. The Thwarted had been jokingly referring to themselves as Prairie Maoists for a while, but by now it stopped being a joke. The political element that had always existed as a hostility towards authority slowly but steadily morphed into an increasingly dogmatic Maoism. At a show in September, Citizen V baffled the audience by opening the show with 10 minutes of reading from Mao's Little Red Book, and then closing the show with a mass cheer for the Cultural Revolution and a call for, quote, something similar to gloriously clean out the bourgeois filth of Sioux City, end quote. This was a lot for people who fundamentally wanted to pump their fists to energetic music while drinking a beer with friends. The thwarted withdrew into themselves. They continued to practice in the barn, but no longer in the main facility. They insisted on rehearsing in a former loading dock that could be closed off. Where they had previously invited any and all to come and watch the practices, now rehearsals were closed to anyone who wouldn't take a loyalty oath at the door. And although the band had always had a very orderly messaging program, again, just think about that business with their names, the individual members had always been more than willing to talk one-on-one -on -one with fans, members of the general public, or the media, both mainstream and underground, in an informal session over a beer. But no more. 
Now their contact with the public happened only through angry, barked stage banter and militant press releases signed by the entire band. The Thwarted's new militancy caused other problems. Sometime in 1974, and I think it must have been October, uh, I'd say October, yep, um, the Thwarted began to demand that we get this. They began to demand we couldn't charge admission for the show and, and that the drinks should be free to relieve the suffering of the proletariat. Can you believe it? It was, it was incredible. So I, I tried to reason with them. I said, like, you know, hey, we all want to help the working man, but we got to pay the fucking bills, right? So Citizen M picks up a piece of lead pipe and he calls me a petty bourgeoisie. You know what a petty bourgeoisie is? You know what that fucking is? You're talking to him. The guy who writes the fucking check. That's the petty bourgeoisie, okay? You know what I'm talking about? So anyway, he told me that when the revolution comes, it's going to be my back against the wall. Well, as you can imagine, I did not take too kindly to that. The thwarted weren't the only source of money trouble for Big Tex Lowry in the barn. Preferring to focus on his role as the presiding spirit at the barn, Lowry liked to leave the day-to-day running of the place to Lyle Derrick. Lowry would occasionally ask Derrick how things were going, and Derrick would say fine, and that'd be that, except for periodic sessions where Derrick would ask Lowry to sign this or that paper for the ongoing operation. Envelopes came into the barn's business office addressed to Lowry from his bank, but he just passed them along unopened to Derrick, the business manager. So I was just floating along, everything was fine, and even if I maybe did notice there were more and more of those bank envelopes coming in, I just figured there, you know, extra hoops to jump through because we had the label active, it's all working, right? I took the envelopes as a sign that things are working. And that fall, I'm hanging out at the bar. I'm at the bar, and I remember I'm eating tortilla chips. And that's what I remember because I never got to finish those tortilla chips. Because Jim Gaines comes over, and he looks grim. He looks, he looks pale. He was sweaty. And he says, can you talk to me for a minute? And I said, son, sure. I'm all ears. Let me get you a beer. Let me get you some tortilla chips. And he says, nope, we got, we got to go outside. We got to step outside the barn. And I didn't really feel like going outside, but Jim seemed really, really serious. And this is a man, he, he is never serious. So I thought, something's going on. So I said, sure. Let's go for a ride. So me and Jim, we get into my car. We're driving around town. And I'm driving, and Jim is just unloading onto me. Ask me if I know what's going on, and I say, I don't know. Why don't you just tell me? And he says, Lyle Derrick is stealing from me. This is what he says. He says, Lyle Derrick is just robbing me blind. So I pull the car over up at the Sergeant Floyd Monument, we're parked there looking across, looking across Sioux City. And I asked him, Jim, do you know what you're fucking saying? Lyle Derrick is a good friend of mine, I said. I, you know, I, I told him, I said that Lyle made this all happen. He made it possible. I'm living out my dreams here because of him. And I won't have you throwing mud on him. And Jim told me, he told me I was blind. And I was choosing to be blind. He couldn't be part of this anymore. I said he needed to get control over himself. And he just kept saying he was through. We went back to the barn. 
And he went, got his son, Chris. He was back in the private rehearsal space with the thwarted. So, of course, Chris is just one of those people that they led into the inner sanctum, you know. But Jim took Chris and they just left. Didn't just leave the barn. They left everything. They left Sioux City. They were gone. And, I, you know, I was mad. I was, I was mad. I was pissed off. I was sick. But, you know, more because I was losing a guy who I felt was a key part of the scene. And, and, you know, his son was too, right? And I felt sick from that more than from believing his stories about Lyle. Lowry later asked Lyle Derrick about Gaines' accusations, and Derrick laughed them off. He said Gaines owed him money from a poker game and was just trying to start trouble and retaliation. Lowry didn't like this story, but he accepted it. The acceptance was easier when, in December, prodigal son Danny Hoska came back to Sioux City, reconciled with his brother, and rejoined the Visceral Realists. Everybody was very happy to have him back, especially Billy Hoska. But the Realists were never quite the same after that. Their live shows, while still a lot of fun, started to always be described in terms of how they stacked up to some glorious past show. You know, like, man, that was nearly as good as that night they opened with the Groovies. But like I said, even a little bit past their peak, the realists were still hot fire on stage, and Thrust was still selling decently anywhere Cow Pie could get distribution for it. The Jawbones Haywire was, too, at least to a lesser extent. At a couple of shows in early November, Dylan Becker, an A&R guy from MCA, was spotted in the crowd scouting a realist's show. He spent 10 minutes afterwards talking to Danny Hoska at the bar. He later tried to introduce himself to Sammy Otto, but she ran away screaming and locked herself inside the thwarted's rehearsal space. Then, just before Thanksgiving, the barn ran into the greatest possible disaster a liquor-fueled freakout factory could encounter. Big Tex Lowry was told that his liquor distributor refused to deliver anything to the barn until he caught up on his unpaid bills. Baffled, Lowry called Lyle Derrick to find out what was going on. But there was no answer at the Derrick house. And there was nobody home when Lowry frantically drove over. Next week, it all comes crashing down. In the meantime, thank you, as always, for listening to this. Um, you know, it, just, it means the world to me to know that there are human beings out there putting this into their brain through the medium of their ears. It's crazy. Uh, again, as always, um, if you have anyone in your life who is into cool, weird shit, uh, you know, please think about telling them about this show. Um, you know, word of mouth. It is the lifeblood. Uh, right on. Thanks again, and be well. See you next week as it crashes. It was just the 4th of May Everything had turned up great